American history and culture is so rich and diverse with all types of people and cultures contributing to its growth and development. However, when we think of U.S. civil rights history, we primarily think of it in a black-white dichotomy. Well, today I am talking with museum professional and public historian, Dr. Sarah Zaneda Gould, about the importance of expanding our understanding of U.S. civil rights history. We do this by including the historical narratives of other marginalized groups and communities. Dr. Gould and I also discuss her efforts to foster social change through museums. Welcome to the Empowerment Zone with Ramona Houston, where we zone in on black and brown relations and our journey to empowering our communities. Dr. Gould is the executive director of the Mexican-American Civil Rights Institute, which is based in San Antonio, the cradle of the Mexican-American Civil Rights Movement. Enjoy our conversation and see show notes for more information about Dr. Gould and the Mexican-American Civil Rights Institute. As always, please subscribe to the Empowerment Zone podcast and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Your support will ensure that we continue our journey in empowerment and impact. Thank you. Enjoy our conversation. Yes, welcome back to the Empowerment Zone. Here we are all about centering and elevating African-American and Latino voices. And we are all about empowerment and impact. And today I have a special treat. We have Dr. Sarah Zaneda Gould with us today. She is the executive director of the Mexican-American Civil Rights Institute. And it's based in San Antonio, one of my favorite all-time cities. And so uh, we're here to talk about uh, how we as American citizens, as citizens of the world, can expand our understanding of U.S. civil rights history. Most of the time when we look at civil rights, we only look at the African-American community and really don't look at how other communities have contributed to and uh, developed civil rights in our country. Um, my area of expertise as a scholar is African-American and Mexican-American history. So uh, this particular topic is right up my alley because I do see a very close relationship, particularly in Texas, uh, between the African-American and Mexican-American civil rights movement. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Uh, I'm looking forward to have a great uh, discussion with our next guest, Dr. Sarah Zaneda Gould. Hi, Dr. Gould. It's a pleasure to have you here on the Empowerment Zone. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me to your show. I, I'm, I'm thrilled to meet you and I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. There's so much that we can learn from uh, you being a guest on our show. As you know, history is so important. Uh, to social impact and empowerment. And we have to know our histories and learn from our histories in order to uh, really uh, accomplish the social, political, and economic goals that we want to accomplish uh, our in, in um, our communities. So tell us, how did you get into 
uh, American civil rights, makes American civil rights, and um, come to be the executive director of the Mexican American Civil Rights Institute. Well, um, let me let me start with some sort of early um, life experience. When I was a kid, I grew up mostly in Houston, and we went to museums all the time on weekends. Um, back then, it's not quite true anymore, but back then, the museums in Houston were very low cost. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming it had to do with all the oil money in the city. I, I'm not really sure, but I just know that the museums were very low cost, not to mention the fact that they were air conditioned. Um, <laughs> so we went to museums on the weekends a lot. And so I have to thank my parents for that. I got very interested in um, the process of walking into this space and learning and, and learning at your own speed, going up to the thing that drew your attention. Um, it's, it's a different type of learning than what happens in school where, um, you know, there are lessons that are taught to you and maybe there will be things in there that really speak to you, but maybe there won't. And, and when you go into a museum, you can kind of pick and choose, ooh, that, that draws my eye. Um, and, and so it, it's just a, a different type of learning. It was, it was very um, compelling to me. I didn't really connect those dots until later, but um, I was really fortunate to, uh, to go to college. Uh, I, I went to Smith College for undergrad, which was very far away from Texas, right? But I, I, had, I was very intrigued by the idea of something totally different. And um, the other thing is that a small private school like that happened to have really good scholarship money. And um, so I, I went to Smith and as it turned out, Smith had a program, still has a program where you can spend a junior year at the Smithsonian. And I, I ended up doing that. Yeah. And, and that opened my eyes to a lot of things. But I will also say that at that time, this was in the um, late 90s, there were a number of things going on nationally that were concerning to me. One of them was there was this big movement for English only. And, um, you know, uh, this uh, sheriff out of Arizona <laughs> um, was um, causing a lot of trouble for people of Mexican descent in Arizona. I think that it was an interesting experience. And I've, I've talked to other people who have had similar experiences where I I grew up in a city that was incredibly diverse, Houston, went to a school in an area that was not so diverse. And um, in that journey, I realized how Mexican I am. I don't think I was really aware of that mm -hmm. when I was growing up in Texas because there were so many different kinds of people in Houston, um, but it became very clear to me going to Massachusetts that in fact I was pretty Mexican <laughs> and um, um, and I wanted to know more about that but at the same time you know hearing these news stories about um, this kind of racist policy that was coming out of particularly the west uh, at that time California and Arizona in particular it, it sparked my curiosity about how that came to be as it turned out, I, I only knew a tiny bit about this at the time, but 
prior to my being born, when my mother was young, her parents were very active in LULAC, the League of United Latin American Citizens, um, which is the oldest Latino civil rights organization. And um, and so my my mother had grown up around my grandparents being very involved in that, going to conferences and meetings uh, about LULAC, raising money to send kids to school to raise scholarship money. Um, but by the time I was growing up, that was something that you know they had moved on from. But my uh, senior year in college, I ended up doing a one month internship at the National Office of LULAC in DC. Mm. Got to see how the policy work they were doing was yes, important, but it was also incredibly slow moving. Those lawsuits would last 10 plus years, right? To create change at this snail's pace. And so going mm -hmm. back to my my experience in my junior year at the Smithsonian, I, I started thinking about how do you how do you create change in a way that's not as slow as the court system? Mm -hmm. And to me, one of those ways, and I'm sure there are many ways, but one of those ways is through teaching people in a mode, in a modality that doesn't feel threatening, that feels more like I'm exploring new information. Now, having said that, I was still somewhat conflicted by the time I, I got to the end of college. I, I took the LSAT thinking maybe I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. Some of the best advice I ever got from, from my college advisor was, why do you have to decide right now? <laughs> so, um, I just, I, I went and I got a job and um, I, I actually ended up working in fundraising for a nonprofit. Um, the first nonprofit I went to work with um, was in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, a very Latino community. And they, it was an alternative to incarceration program for nonviolent drug offenders, my apologies. It was, it was an um, alternative to incarceration program for nonviolent drug offenders, which offered family-based counseling for, for people who were trying to work through um, addiction and, and keep people out of prison. Because for so many families, especially if, if a breadwinner goes into prison, the whole family becomes right. incredibly vulnerable. Right. And in New York at the time, there were some very strict drug laws called the Rockefeller drug laws, which would impact truly the entire family and, and destabilize their housing situation, all, all kinds of, of issues. And so um, this was kind of, again, uh, late, this was 1999. This was before drug courts became more prevalent. So now we have more uh, of this across the US where if you have a drug convention, conviction in some places you can go to a drug court and get an alternative sentencing that will keep your wellness in mind because mm -hmm. if, if we mm -hmm. you know addiction is a disease it needs treatment um so anyway i got fundraising experience doing that so i my my boss actually sent me to a grant writing class she noticed i could i could write pretty well she sent me to a grant writing class i liked it i ended up doing a um philanthropy program through NYU's continuing ed program. Mm -hmm. But I also, during that time, decided, I made my decision. And, and my, my professor at Smith had been right. I didn't need to make the decision right away when I graduated from college that it would eventually come to me. And I did decide, I do wanna go um, into museum work because 
I, I really did feel like that was where you could make people, you know, sort of experience history in a fun way, experience um, the past where maybe we have made mistakes and missteps and why did we do that and how could we course correct you know even now how, how do we how do we do that how do we miss how do we create the future we want um and so i i went back to grad school um while i was in grad school i did several internships and fellowships at museums to get some more museum experience when i graduated i moved back to texas uh, and um, got a job here in san antonio at the institute of texan cultures which is a museum that specializes in the the histories of the different cultures that make up texas which was in many ways perfect for me because my um my master's and, and my phd the idea was they're, they're all in america all my degrees are in american studies but i was really interested in comparative ethnic studies Mm -hmm. um, and and how how do we interact with each other, uh, different groups? How how have we worked together? How have we worked mm -hmm. against each other? How how do how do we course correct that? Mm -hmm. um, and and so um, I was there for seven and a half years, and and eventually uh, left to help a local nonprofit uh, get a community museum off the ground. I was there for, for two years, the pandemic hit, and MACVI, um, the Mexican-American Civil Rights Institute, was an organization on whose founding board I was a member, and they needed to find an executive director, and they asked if I would consider doing it. So that's how I got here. I love that journey um, in, in that, you know, you're in the process of figuring out how can I make change? How can I institute change? And then being able to flow to to experience uh, different types of um, internships and in experiential learning programs that really directed you in into the space of uh, doing museum work. Yeah, and, and I will also just say that um, uh, I think a big influence on me growing up was popular culture, just mm -hmm. watching TV and movies. And one of the things that I, I found so compelling about museum work is that when you go into museums and you see these, particularly history museums, and you see these objects from the past, oftentimes those objects are things that you, at least in my case, encountered through TV or movies or even through family stories. And so you start to make a connection between this physical thing and, and some, some bit of knowledge you know, but then from there, it can really grow into, well, what else can I know about this? And I, to me, it, museum work or, or, or even just the process of visiting a museum that I've never been to before, it's a little bit like being a history detective and learning these things about the past. And I find it so fun. Um, so I, you know, I, I hope that there are ways we can engage more people with history because I don't think history is something that we should ever see as a threat. I, I think that's something that is so relevant in our moment and it, it, it's not new, but this idea that um, some people wanna control the historical narrative, I think that's something we have to be so careful about how we approach that and how 
we ensure that not just all people living today, but future generations have access to accurate information. And, um, and of course, for many, many generations, the version of American history or the version of Texas history um, where I am from has been shaped politically. And in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a big movement within the history field to tell more diverse stories, to broaden the narrative. So we start seeing the emergence of African-American history. We start seeing the emergence of women's history. Um, later, we start to see the emergence of um, Asian-American, Latino or Mexican-American Chicano history. And, and then later than that, um, uh, gender history, LGBTQ history, right? So there's there are all these avenues where many of us did not grow up in school with those more diverse narratives, but there are now scholars working on those parts of history that weren't part of, of sort of the mainstream story in the past. It's going to take a while for that to move from the university level to say the you know K through 12 public school level. We're seeing that right now. We're, we're seeing the kind of pushback against the attempt to, to bring uh, these narratives into um, K through 12. And um, we have a lot of work to do. I, I would just say we don't wanna get um, too frustrated by it because I, I will just say change happens slowly. When, you know, when you study history, you know this. Change happens very slowly. There are often a lot of steps backwards before you move forward again. Um, and, and history is never this straight path to, to the future, right? It's always bumpy and uh, a little bit of back and forth. So um, there is a lot we can do. I, just, I do want to just say, though, I think it is super important that we have made at least some progress with getting the general public to know African-American civil rights history. You really cannot understand this country without understanding African-American civil rights history. And had it not been for the African-American civil rights movement, and I'm gonna take the African-American civil rights movement back to at least World War I, but certainly we could go even further back. Um, but had it not been for that, we would not have had the inspiration for people like, um, I'm, I know one of your previous guests, uh, Cynthia Orozco talked about Alonzo Perales. He was a Mexican American who was in World War I, went on to do all these amazing things. But had there not been African Americans questioning segregation, questioning uh, the rule of law in that moment, it's hard to imagine that Mexican Americans or later Asian Americans or Native Americans or you know all these other groups would have had the you know the, the model or the precedent to to take these actions that 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 then really come to a head in the late 60s early 70s and honestly we're still we're still working through some of that um, but it it is critical that the American public know African American civil rights history. The next stage, the stage that Macri is involved in, I think is to increase the public's awareness of, of other civil rights histories, right? And so for us, we're focusing on Mexican-American civil rights history. But again, Mexican-American civil rights history does not exist in some kind of vacuum without 
women's rights history or without LGBTQ rights history. These things are all interwoven. So even though we, we want to focus on the Mexican-American, and, and I'll explain why in a second, um, I do not ever want us to think that Mexican-American civil rights history is its own separate mm -hmm. thing. In terms of why it's so important, uh, I, I would just point to the demographics of the country, certainly the demographics of Texas, and especially the demographics of our public schools across the country. Uh, right now, Latinos are the largest ethnic minority group in the U.S. and have been for 20 years. For 20 years, we've been the largest ethnic minority group in the country. As of last year, we became the largest demographic group in Texas, not the largest ethnic demographic group, just the largest demographic group, period. We also have more Latino students in public schools than, than any other group. Um, Latinos tend to be young, tend to be under 18. So um, what does it mean to have these schools full of brown faces that don't really know much about Mexican-American history, much less that for generations, Mexican-Americans have been working to advance democracy. That That's really critical to me is I think that this is not isolated to Mexican-Americans. You see this across different um, ethnic groups that there's this stereotype of foreignness that sticks to different uh, ethnic groups, or there's this stereotype of, in some cases, passiveness about oppression that sticks to different you know, groups. And, and that is, is simply not true. We have had Mexican-Americans push back against discrimination for a very long time, um, go, going back, honestly, to before uh, 1836. So um, these, are, these are things we need to know about. Um, what impact does it have on the psyche, on the, the um, self-esteem of a kid who thinks, you know, we never did anything? And how wrong is that too, that, that, that narrative? Of course that's wrong. Um, so, so we have so much um, that we can do. And, and my, my approach tends to be one of, let us put the facts out there uh, through exhibits, engaging exhibits, engaging public programs. And, you know, hopefully people will, will come to it with, with an open mind. Um, and then if they find something that they find, you know, interesting, something that they wanna know more about, hopefully they will um, either follow some of the information that we provide or, or go, I mean, honestly, hop on Wikipedia and, um, and learn some more about uh, this history. There's so much that, that is out there. Um, there's no reason to, I, I guess what I, I just want to emphasize is there's no reason to be afraid of this history. It doesn't erase anything else. So, you know, to say, um, hey, did you know that Mexican-American school children were segregated for a long time and that, in fact, uh, the impact of Brown versus Board of Education on 1954 
Supreme Court case did not get extended to Mexican-American school children until 1970. That's just facts, but it helps you better understand the situation in Texas and helps you understand why it's been so hard for Mexican-Americans to, to you know, claw their way up into the middle class. Um, you know, so that, that there's all this information that I think would help people better understand who we are as a country, who we are um, as, as a community of people who, who live together, and, and how do we frame our understanding of democracy when, when we do have, you know, these, these issues. That, that's not to be anti-American. That's not to be, um, I don't know. It, 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 it's just simply helping people see the wider story. I so agree with you uh, in your assessment. You know, when we look at American history, it is the way it's been told thus far. It is distorted uh, history. And the reason it's distorted history is because it has omitted so many other histories, right? And so your work in the in the museum and the work of various scholars, which you mentioned, is to disrupt and reframe the narrative so that we can have a better and clearer understanding of American history, uh, both its its great things and not so great. You know, you talked about the desegre the segregation of uh, Mexican American students, which a lot of people don't know. We know that African Americans were segregated in the public school system. But few people know that Texas actually segregated Mexican-Americans as well. And because they were classified as white, that was their excuse for not uh, uh, allowing, like you mentioned, uh, the you had to have a whole nother case in 1970 mm -hmm. to get uh, uh, Mexicans, to keep Mexicans from being segregated, Mexican-Americans from being segregated in the public school system. So it's a, a very complex story that needs to be told. And more so, as you stated, that people are very much influenced by their histories. And you, you talked about the impact on the psyche of, uh, of young people, and I would even say adults, when you don't uh, really have a clear understanding of your history or you've embraced the various stereotypes that you've been exposed to because you don't know anything else exists. Um, you know, you talked about change and how change happens at a snail's pace in the U.S. <laughs> uh, and it's true. Uh, when you look at how many years it takes for lawsuits and, you know, the changes that we make, uh, even if you look at uh, desegregation, just topic we were just talking about, you know, the Brown decision was in 54, but it was all deliberate speed versus a specific date, you know, uh, for desegregation. So my question to you is, in the proce process of creating change, how do you feel, do you feel that museums have actually inst instituted a faster pace or do you think it's still kind of a slower pace to change when you look at the impact of museums on, on change? Yeah, I I, I think it, it it has to do, you know, some museums have been very successful. 
some museums are, are getting there, but I, I wanna just share one anecdote here. So a few years ago, the Smithsonian opened their National Museum of African-American History and Culture. It was one of the most anticipated museum openings of probably our lifetime. And, um, you know, it was a museum that took 20 something years to, to bring into existence. And, um, you know, not only was it very expensive, but there had to be an act of Congress to approve it and all of these steps. When it opened, uh, as folks may remember, it was so popular that they had to have a timed ticketing system uh, to, so that you could get access. It inspired a huge uptick in what we might call African-American heritage tourism, where African-American families would schedule trips with their family, with their church, with their you know neighbors to go to DC to see this museum. And because it was so popular and because it was hard to get to, either because of the, the limited tickets or just the expense of going to DC, there was spillover mm -hmm. So that African-American museums across the country saw an uptick in visitorship when that museum opened. Mm -hmm. You know, people were like, oh, wait, there, there's a museum here in my, in my community that's an African-American museum, let's go there. Mm -hmm. And the really great news is that that visitorship has continued. So um, I just, I, last summer I went on a, a road trip and visited about a dozen African-American civil rights museums um, in uh, Memphis, mm -hmm. Alabama, Mississippi, and Atlanta. Um, every place I went, tour buses, you know, packed with families, black, white, brown, you know, it, it was wonderful. I loved to see that. I loved to see that. I think, um, I, I think it would be very hard to imagine that any families that went to either the Smithsonian's African American Museum or any one of those civil rights museums um, in the South, I think it would be very hard for them to leave that space without saying, huh, you know, that this this is some this is real American history. And this is history that we're still grappling with today. Um, you know, that this none of those museums necessarily end with. And now we all live happily after ever after, right? Um, right. And in particular, there's this um, uh, museum in um, Montgomery. Yes. Uh, yes. That you know what I'm talking about? Yes. That, the, that, the lynching museum. Um... Yes. Um, it takes you through the history of you know the mm -hmm. um, uh, passage across the Atlantic Ocean enslavement and then it makes a connection to incarceration today yep and the 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 obscene incarceration numbers in our country it does give you a little bit of hope i think at the end where you you end in this art gallery and so you can see a combination of, of beautiful art but also some art that's about some very difficult subjects um but i i think that I, I just, again, I don't know how you can go to any of those museums and think, okay, well, everything's good now. Um, but instead, I, I really think they do open your mind to, wow, you know, how, how did we ever justify that in the, in the land of the free? 
right? How did we ever justify that? How do we, how do we come to terms with that? And how do we make the, the world, the nation that we want to live in? I'm very hopeful that in a few years, the Smithsonian is going to be opening the National Museum of the American Latino. I'm very hopeful that that museum is also going to create an interest in Latino history. Right now, believe it or not, there are over 35,000 museums in this country and only about two dozen focus on Latinos. The majority of them are art museums, um, which that's lovely, but there's not a lot of, of opportunity for the public to go into a museum setting and learn about Latino history. So that Smithsonian Latino Museum is going to be very important for that. But I also hope it will create spillover interest in, well, okay, we're in Texas where the majority of people are Latino. Where, where do I go and learn Latino history? Same thing in California, right? Same thing in, in places like Chicago and mm -hmm. um, you know all, all over the US, <laughs> we're everywhere. Um, but um, it, it is gonna take, a few years for us to grow into that thing. We we are turning four on May 29th. Um, in those four years, we have focused primarily on creating virtual programs and virtual, we have a virtual exhibit up. Um, we are now moving into a hybrid phase where we'll be um, introducing a physical, a small physical location. It's our starter home. And, and then hopefully, you know, in 10 years, we'll have a National Museum for Mexican-American Civil Rights History. Um, San Antonio, as folks may know, is the cradle of a lot of Mexican-American Civil Rights History in the United States. Um, things that happen in California oftentimes had some kind of connection back to San Antonio. MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, was founded here along with couple of dozen Mexican-American civil rights organizations. So that this, it's also, San Antonio has a, a very active tourist economy. A lot of people come for the Riverwalk and uh, the Alamo and the missions. So we, we think that um, we'll be getting uh, not only the local population, which San Antonio is about 67% Mexican-American, but also we think, you know, folks from other parts of the state would come to the museum. And we certainly hope people from other parts of the country would come too. What I, I think is so critical that everybody know is that Latino history is American history. Mm -hmm. Just like African-American history is American history. Just like Asian-American history is American history. So um, if, if you consider yourself well-versed in American history, well, you're gonna wanna know Mexican-American civil rights history. So Dr. Sarah Zaneda Gould, we're big advocates for higher education here. And um, we want you to give a strategy for college success so that students can go into college and know some strategies so that they can make sure they're successful in college. Because a lot of times, as you know, we go through college and we're like, I wish I would have known this. I wish I would have known that. So could you begin by telling us 
what college is did you attend? What were your degrees and majors? And then what strategies would you give students to ensure that they're successful in college? Absolutely. I attended Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts for undergrad. That's one of the women's colleges. One, they, call them, they call them the Seven Sisters. Um, I majored in American Studies, which is an interdisciplinary field. It allowed me to do some history, some sociology, some literature. I, I liked being able to, to do a little bit of, of those different humanities things. And um, I then ended up going to the University of Michigan to get a master's degree and PhD, also in American Studies, although there they call it American culture. But again, it's an interdisciplinary field. So I, for me, my focus was history, but I also took classes in film studies, uh, visual culture, art, art history. Um, that, that allowed me to just sort of get a broad grounding. Um, in terms of tips, um, the first thing I would just say is as you're thinking about applying to undergrad, don't be afraid to apply to private schools. I know they have huge price tags attached to them, but oftentimes private schools have more scholarship money than public schools. So when I was applying to schools, um, I applied to UT Austin, which is like my state school. I also applied to several different um, public schools, I'm sorry, private schools. The financial aid package I got from Smith made it cheaper than going to UT Austin. And had I not applied, I never would have known that. So just don't rule out private schools. Um, I would also say, um, there are books, guidelines, websites about note-taking. Really do read those because I, I think that that's that's one of the things that I didn't really know when I got to college. I didn't know how to really take effective notes. Um, I was one of those people who underlined almost everything. That's not helpful. <laughs> it's not helpful. Um, if you if you need to know uh, what what is really important and you've underlined half the book, that's not helpful. So um, there there are guides that you can find about how to take effective notes, and I would just really recommend doing that because probably, at least in my case, nobody ever taught me. Um, so it was very trial and error for me. And I wish I wish I had known that. Um, in terms of grad school, I got really lucky. I applied to multiple schools. I ended up going to one that had a graduate student union, uh, labor union. Mm. And honestly, when I made the decision, that did not factor in, but in hindsight, that was such a good decision. I got health insurance. I got dental insurance. Not every grad school offers that. And it was my labor union that made sure we had those things. Um, so, you know, not every graduate program that, that you might be attracted to is going to offer that. But if, if they have it, that's a big plus. These are... <laughs> Excellent strategies. This is great advice. Uh, and actually, these are three pieces of advice I haven't heard on the show yet. Uh, to apply for um, 
private schools. You know, private schools have a lot of scholarship money. And so don't mark out those, even though they have a high price tag attached to them, make sure you consider those as options too. Learn about how to take notes. That is vital. Um, a lot of students don't learn, uh, don't know how to take notes when they're in college. And I'll give one, add a piece of advice to that. They say it's better to write notes that you learn, you learn what you write versus typing notes. So that's a, a good piece of advice. And then lastly, Consider choosing uh, graduate schools that have a labor union. I can testify, I went to the University of Texas at Austin for graduate school and we did not have a labor union. So I did not have health insurance and prayed all the time I wouldn't get sick, you know, and had to pay for my own health uh, bills and uh, dental bills. Uh, so I think that is a, a good piece of advice as well. So thank you, Dr. Sarah Zaneda Gould. Uh, we appreciate your advice. Thank you for having me and, and good luck to everybody applying to college. I know it's, it's daunting, especially if you're first gen and, and you, you don't really have anybody to explain this to. Um, you'll get through it. Thank you. Thank you so much for that great advice. A special thank you to the incredible team of the Empowerment Zone. Terry Gully, theme song, NADWorks, digital support, and of course, our featured guest, 